Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to John chapter 1. The good news this morning is that this is, Lord willing, uh, the last sermon on the first chapter of John. So next time we'll have uh, a sermon on John chapter 2, and Lord willing, that will be at the end of December. We'll, We'll move into our Advent season here with a few sermons over the next Sundays throughout December, working through Isaiah 9 and the names of Jesus Christ there that are given to us, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But until then, a good place today, John chapter 1, verses 43 through 52. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn with me there, and would you stand as I read God's Word as we seek to honor it. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we desire to see wonderful things out of your word. So unite our hearts to behold these wonderful truths, to change us, to make us one, and to draw us near to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes we like to think in 
ideals. Do you have ideals in your mind? This is the way it should be. This is the way that it's supposed to be. These are the expectations that I think should be met for something to be considered acceptable and good. Do you ever notice, though, that ideals are frustrating? They frustrate us because we are constantly reminded that nothing is ideal. People are looking for the ideal spouse. This is what a husband is supposed to be like. This is what a wife is supposed to be like. We want ideal children. Here's how my children are supposed to act. Here's what they are supposed to be like. How quickly that's thrown out the window. We want the ideal family. This is what relationships within our family are supposed to be like. We want the ideal job or workplace or boss. This is the perfect working condition. These are perfect co-workers. This is the perfect boss. This is the perfect pay. No one ever says that. We want the ideal church where everything is perfect, at least perfectly the way that we want it. What is it said of the perfect ideal church? If you're looking for that church, it's certain that if you were to join that church, it's no longer a perfect church. We could go on. I want ideal friendships. I want an ideal house. I want an ideal place to live. I want the ideal car buying experience. It could be anything. It could be everything. Why? Do you want everything to be ideal? Because you want heaven. Heaven is where everything is right. Everything is the way that it's supposed to be. In heaven, everything is truly ideal. What it's supposed to be. Not lacking, failing, broken, imperfect in any way. We want ideals. We long for ideals because we long for heaven. We even use heaven as a comparison for things that satisfy us or make us feel good or bring happiness into our lives. Being with you is like heaven. I could stay here all day long because it's like a little slice of heaven. How many things would you compare heaven to? Yeah, we even do it with dessert of all things. Probably most often chocolate melts in your mouth as you say, heavenly. For all of our longing to have heaven, how discouraging and disparaging is our world as we are reminded over and over and over again that we are not in heaven. Far from it. Everything is broken. Everything is fallen. Everything is not the way we would want it. Everything is tainted by sin and, de and death. Ideal, heavenly. Nothing is ideal or heavenly. And as a result, we could become increasingly frustrated and discouraged. Or we could give ourselves over to despair and listlessness. On the one hand, it's ramming your head into the wall again and again and again. On the other hand, it's throwing your hands up in the air, letting depression take over as the world goes to hell in a handbasket. 
For the Christian, neither of these responses is a faithful option. They are either being completely frustrated, completely discouraged and depressed. Those are the result of wrong thinking. And each ditch is unstable and only leads to unrest in our souls. Here is the real problem. No place will be heaven and nothing will be heavenly without Christ. How many believe they can have heaven, that everything can be made right without Christ, but that's not the case. Our thinking must be calibrated to Christ. It is only He that helps us think rightly about our situation. It is He who can help us live faithfully in our current situation. And it's only He who can do anything about it. Only He can change it. Only He can restore it. Only He can make it new. Only He can, here's a key word for us this morning, renew it. And our following of Jesus is dependent upon such renewal. The theme of renewal is threaded through our verses this morning, and it's put in the context of discipleship. We are going to see that Jesus restores and Jesus renews, and that his renewal is not merely external, but his renewal has a profound impact on our discipleship, on our following of him. It's because of his renewal that we are drawn to him, and it is a renewal that is intensely personal. So what do we see Jesus renew in this passage, and how does that affect us and our following of Jesus? Well, number one this morning, I think you just have a lot of blanks, so you have to fill in everything this morning, but I have faith in you. I know you can do it. Number one this morning. Jesus renews our faith in, in what is ultimately good. Jesus renews our faith in what is ultimately good. Jesus renews our faith in what is ultimately good. Where does our text begin? Verse 43, the next day. Again, this is the third time this phrase has been repeated. Remember, it is significant. It's important. So our anticipation of its importance and significance is building. There will be a payoff, I promise. But as of yet, you still have to wait. But this is the next day. And if you're counting days, this is day number four. There is a decision here to go to Galilee. We know much of Jesus' ministry takes place in the region of Galilee, which is a northern region in Israel called Galilee because of the Sea of Galilee that is there in that region. The previous days, Jesus and his first followers were in this place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. So somewhere roughly east of the Sea of Galilee, that's where this was taking place. Now Jesus and his first few disciples are about to go west. It seems that before they go, however, Philip is found, and Jesus says to Philip, 
follow me. It's a simple command, a call for Philip to become a follower, a disciple of Jesus. And do you notice here, we are never told Philip's response. All indications appear that Philip responded positively. He submitted himself to Jesus and obeyed Jesus. But we're never told exactly what he did. We are given this background, however, about Philip. He's from this town called Bethsaida. It's the same hometown as Andrew and Peter. Bethsaida means house of fishing. So can you imagine what people did in this town for their main source of income? They were fishermen. Bethsaida located very close to the Sea of Galilee. And it could be that Jesus was gathering these disciples from the region to which he would do much of his ministry. While we're not told explicitly how Philip responded to Jesus' call, the very next verse tells us implicitly, Philip went and found Nathanael. Do you see that there? Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael. Here we have a principle of discipleship, a principle of Christian living. This is the foundational principle for Christian expansion. New followers of Jesus bear witness of him to others who in turn become disciples and repeat the process. Do we need to go back to this foundational principle? It doesn't work any differently today than it did with Philip and Nathaniel. Philip was called by Christ to follow Christ. Philip followed Jesus, and then he went and found someone else and told him about Jesus. Do you pray for the gospel to spread? Do you pray for others to receive salvation in Jesus Christ? But you won't bear witness to Jesus? This is how Christian expansion works. The disciples of Jesus tell other people about Jesus. If, this, if you follow Jesus, this is what you will do. You will bring others to Jesus. You will proclaim the gospel of Jesus. So, if this is the foundational principle for Christian expansion, how are we doing? How are we doing in finding somebody else and saying, we found the Christ. Here's who Jesus is. That's Christianity 101. We haven't even got out of the first chapter of John. And these men were so captivated by Christ, they were so drawn to Christ, that they had to tell other people about him. Family members, friends, other people, they had to tell other people about Jesus. Brother and sister, we have to recapture this. This has to be a normal part of our lives. It's foundational for Christian living. It's the basics. We know Jesus. 
We follow Jesus. We find others and tell them about Jesus. And in these first verses of John 1, we see it as a priority of those who come in contact with Jesus. Is it a priority in your life? And Philip finds Nathanael and makes this proclamation. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This is another way of saying what Andrew already said to Peter in the verses prior to this. We have found the Messiah. Philip here thought the whole Old Testament from beginning to end. So he uses this from the law of Moses to the prophets. So beginning, end, and everything in between in the Old Testament, what did it do? It pointed to the Messiah. It pointed to the one who was to come. And he says, we found him. This is how they read their Bibles. The whole of the Old Testament was written to introduce them to the Christ and to the Messiah. It's like Philip saying, we found the one of whom the entire Bible is about. And then Philip identifies Jesus in a rather normal fashion. He identifies him by his town and by his father. Now we could quibble with Philip about these identifying markers. He wasn't from Nazareth. He was from Bethlehem. His father wasn't really Joseph based on the virgin birth. Philip's not necessarily trying to make a theological point with these identifying markers. He's simply trying to identify and say, this is Jesus. Jesus could have been a common name in those days. So this is Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua from Nazareth, so from this little town. His father is Joseph. Nathaniel responds to Philip's claim in such a way that would appear to pour cold water on Philip's flame. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a response that is flippant, doubtful, rather dismissive. It is skepticism that anything so significant like the Messiah could come from any place so insignificant as Nazareth. Is there a little bit of Nathaniel in you? Like, are you ever skeptical I mean, we even have this today a little bit, don't we, between towns? If you're from Ottawa, forgive me. But nothing good could ever come from Ottawa. Or something like that, right? I mean, pick your town, right? Pick your town. Wherever you think is insignificant. Nathaniel's saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We could be like Nathaniel, cynical, skeptical, initially dismissive and doubting, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Nathaniel even questions the origin of Jesus. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's his origin? That's where he's from? Certainly, we as the reader of John's gospel have already had some insight into what Nathaniel says. The curtain 
has already been pulled back for us, as it were, from the beginning of this gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We have had our eyes open to the eternal existence of the Word, the Son. Where does He come from? That's the wrong question. He always has been. He always is. He always will be. And here's the irony of Nathaniel's statement. Jesus is not something good. Jesus is the supreme good. No one is good but God alone. Exactly right. Jesus is God. Nathaniel would not ha- even have an idea of how to judge what is good apart from Jesus. Jesus is not anything good. He is someone good. But in another way, Nathaniel is completely right. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? No. In fact, nothing good can come out of any human place. What is truly good must come from God. Where was Jesus from? He was from God. He was from above. He was from heaven. This Messiah does not have an earthly origin, for that would have marred his claim to supreme goodness. That which is truly, rightly, ideally good must come from God. And so Philip's invitation then is so much more potent. Come and see for yourself. Come and see Jesus. Come and see his goodness. Come and experience that he is good. Are we so busy in our lives lamenting about all of the things that aren't good? that we've lost sight of him who is good. What fills up your day? What fills up the words that come out of your mouth? All of the bad things? You're constantly lamenting about how bad things are, maybe in your life, bad things are in the world. Rather than proclaiming the one who is good, rather than praising the one who is good? (laughs) Is it any wonder if you spend your days lamenting everything that is bad in the world, lamenting about how hard you have it, thinking of everything that is wrong, how are you going to feel? You're going to feel great? No, you're going to feel awful. You're going to feel bad. But, Try this, if you spend your day proclaiming and talking about Jesus Christ, the one who is good, how will that change the way that you feel? What will that do for your mindset? What will that do for your joy? I dare say you'll be transformed. Do you praise Jesus that he is good? Number two, Jesus renews our hope in the promise of peace and security. Jesus renews our hope in the promise of peace and security. 
Nathan accept Philip's invitation? Makes his way towards Jesus. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. He makes this exclamation about Nathanael. If you were to walk to Jesus and Jesus saw you coming, what would Jesus say about you? What would you think Jesus would say about you? Again, what did Jesus say when he saw Simon? You are Peter, the rock man. What did Jesus see when he saw Nathanael? Behold an Israelite indeed. A true Israelite. This is someone worthy of the name Israelite. And how did he know he was worthy of such a name? Because there is no deceit. There is no guile. This may be a good KJV if you have the King James Version. Maybe it says guile. There's no treachery in this man. Who would Jesus say that of? There's no treachery. There's no guile. There was no deceit in this man. Seems quite right for Nathaniel at that point to ask Jesus, How do you know me? Jesus, you just made a claim about my character. You just made a claim about my heart. How do you know me? How can you possibly see into the depths of my heart? And Jesus answers, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus here reveals that his scene is not an ordinary scene. It's a supernatural scene. It's a supernatural knowledge. He saw Philip when no one else saw Philip. He knew where Philip was when no one else knew where Philip was. This supernatural knowledge of Jesus is not some parlor trick. It's a testimony to the deity of Christ. It's a witness to the fact that he is the son of God. He is the king of Israel. He is the Messiah. And Jesus, I believe, says this because there's also another layer of meaning. So I've just given you one layer of meaning, and I think that meaning is Jesus with supernatural scene and supernatural knowledge, saw, Phil, saw Nathaniel before Philip called him under the fig tree. No one else knew where Nathaniel was. No one else saw him. So that was a supernatural scene and a supernatural knowledge. Jesus is revealing that he knew of Nathaniel. But there's another layer of meaning underneath that, and it comes from our reading of the Old Testament. In the background, of much of what is said in these verses, it draws our mind to the patriarch named Jacob. Do you remember what Jacob did to Esau and to his father Isaac? Well, flip back with me to Genesis chapter 27, verses 35 and 36. Genesis 27, 35 and 36. This is now Isaac talking to his son Esau about Jacob. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. 
Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Jacob had deceived his father, his brother. He was a deceiver. But in the course of Jacob's life, do you remember what happens? He ends up wrestling with God, and after wrestling with God, his name is changed to Israel. The name under which then the whole nation comes to be called. So when Jesus says to Nathanael, truly you are an Israelite, he is saying, you are an Israel, not a Jacob. You are Nathanael, a certain kind of Israelite, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And this is the kind of Israelite that is promoted in the rest of the Old Testament. So look at Psalm 32. Psalm 32, verse 2. You're familiar with these verses, right? Because our brother Eric just preached upon them recently. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit, what? There is no deceit. This is what an Israelite is supposed to look like. One whose spirit, in whose spirit there is no deceit. But even more, this kind of Israelite is associated with the faithful remnant of believing people that the Lord will preserve to the end. So now, go forward in the Old Testament to the book of Zephaniah. Habakkuk, if you go there, then Zephaniah is the next. Or you can work your way backwards. Zephaniah chapter 3. So, remember, the Old Testament is promoting that an Israelite is one in whom there is no deceit. And now, the Lord's going to make a promise here in these verses. This faithful remnant, what are they going to be like? Verse 12, Zephaniah chapter 3. This is not... A book that we often maybe have our quiet times in, but maybe it'll encourage you to do that this week. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth, what? A deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Nathaniel, in these verses, I believe, is serving as a representative of this kind of faithful, believing remnant. And what is promised to these faithful, believing remnants of people? Again, we have to go back to Jesus' word in John 1. So Philip, I, or I'm sorry, Nathaniel, I think, is representing this faithful remnant of believing people. And what's promised to these people? We see this in these words that Jesus says, when you were 
under the fig tree. Under the fig tree is used in the Old Testament as a statement for peace and security. So let me prove that to you now. Under the fig tree is a statement used in the Old Testament to promote peace and security. So 1 Kings 4. You're moving around a lot in God's Word, I know, but it, I think it'll pay off, trust me. 1 Kings 4, 25. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba. Every man, what? Under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. So what is it saying there? It's saying peace and security came in the days of Solomon, right? And how was that expressed? Every man is under his fig tree. It's this golden age of peace and security that's ushered in by Solomon. Okay, now go to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 10. Zechariah, again, towards the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah 3, verse 10. So now, this is looking forward to the future of a day of peace and security that will come. Zechariah 3.10, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Why? Because it's a time of peace and security. It's a day that's coming. And then back a few more books to the book of Micah, chapter 4, verse 4. Micah 4, 4. Now what's Micah talking about in 4, 4? Well, I think he's talking about the coming of the Messiah. And Micah 4, 4 says this, but they shall sit every man under his vine and what? Under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. Why are all these important? They describe peace and security for the people of God, and in particular, these last two verses promise the establishment of peace and security in the Messianic age. The image of Nathaniel under the fig tree is an image of Messianic fulfillment alluding to these prophecies. As an Israelite, without deceit, Nathaniel enjoys the peace and security of the messianic age just as all of those who are Christ's will experience. What a promise in Micah 4.4 that here all of those in the messianic age will know peace and security and look at what it says, and no one shall make them afraid. Which brings us back to the book of Zephaniah, doesn't it? Back to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 3. Do you see that there? Those who are left in Israel, they shall do... This is uh, Zephaniah 3, 13. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and what? And none shall make them afraid. Knowing Jesus Christ... And him knowing us as his people brings peace and security into our lives and it drives out fears. Why is there no peace and security in your life? Why are there so many fears that constantly fill your mind? 
Is it because you're not looking to him who causes fears to fly and brings eternal peace and security? Again, if you stare at everything that is threatening you, and you feel afraid, of course you'll feel afraid. Of course you don't have peace and security. You've been looking at everything that threatens you. You've been looking at all of your circumstances that aren't going the way that you want instead of looking to Christ and having His glory fill your mind. And look at this. This is amazing. Blows my mind. Zephaniah 3. Okay, we just read verses 12 and 13. Let's just keep reading here, okay? Verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel. Wait a second. What did Nathaniel say after Jesus spoke to him? You are the Son of God. What? The king of Israel. Nathaniel's response is the same response in Zephaniah. You are the king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is what Nathaniel was going to know. This is what everyone in Christ is supposed to know. This beautiful ministry of Christ who saves his people, who rejoices over them with gladness, who quiets them by his love. Do you need that, dear brother and sister? Do you need to be quieted by Christ's love? There is peace and security in the quieting words of his love. And this is what I love too. He will exult over you with loud singing. You ever think of Jesus singing? Here it is. He is exulting over his people with loud singing. Do you want to be like Christ? Here is one way. You can be like Christ. Sing. Sing with all your heart. Sing with all your mind. What peace and security does he give to us that we can only know in him? Jesus renews our hope in the promise of peace and security. And finally, Jesus renews our access to God. Jesus renews our access to God. Nathaniel has experienced something great. And he's responded saying, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. These words of faith in Christ. He sees him as the Messiah. The Son of David. The promised one. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. You ain't seen nothing yet, Nathaniel. 
And Jesus goes on to say, truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen. Jesus calls our attention to this next statement and its truthfulness. He confirms it. It's a steadfast and true word. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The disciples, and I think here, I say disciples, not just merely Nathaniel, because this word, I say to you, you will see heaven open, that you is plural, it's more than, more than one. So I think he's saying this to all of his disciples. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The disciples will receive a God-given perception of the significance of Jesus. That's this idea Heaven will be opened. You will see heaven open. And so what's going to happen when heaven opens? You're going to see something differently. It's going to be God-given perception into the significance of Jesus. What's this significance? Again, here the backdrop is the event of Jacob's life that we already read about in Genesis 28. In particular, Genesis 28, 12. Jacob sees a vision of a ladder and angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And what does Jesus say to his disciples here? I am the ladder. I am the connection, the link between heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is the mediator and the only way to God. It is explicit that Jesus, as the Son of Man, is the true ladder. There is no other ladder. There is no other way. Access to God is through Jesus and through Jesus exclusively. But it gets even more specific than this. In Genesis 28, 12, that word for ladder, it's the only time that word is used there in the Old Testament and then in all of God's word. But the root of that word is a word that's an action word that means to lift up or to exalt. John picks up on this kind of language in his gospel. Three times he talks about the Son of Man being lifted up, being exalted. And how is Jesus to be lifted up and exalted? Through the cross, through his death. Could it be then John has interpreted the ladder of Jacob's dream as Jesus lifted up on the cross? The ladder that is set up on earth but reaches into heaven that fits with John's understanding of the cross, lifting up Jesus from the earth and exalting him to heaven. Nathaniel then, along with the other disciples, will see something truly miraculous because they will see Christ renew our access to God through the finished work of the cross. This is not merely a God-given perception of the significance of Jesus, but even more, a God-given perception of the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. He is the only way to God, and he made that way to God through the cross. He will bring renewal through his death 
and through his resurrection. He is the mediator between God and man. Why all of these renewals? Why a renewal in our faith of what is ultimately good? Why a renewal in our hope of the promise of peace and security? Why the renewal of access to God? Because it all reminds us that Jesus renews us. It is a renewed people who experience a renewed existence. We love all of these renewals because we're reminded that we've been made new in Jesus. We can think this way because Christ has so given us minds so that we can recalibrate our minds to be captivated by Him. All of these are intensely personal because they all are exactly what we need and exactly what we want, but we only need them and we only want them because we are renewed people in Christ. I wonder if that's how you think about yourself. That you are one, if you are in Christ Jesus, is one who's been made new. You've been renewed. And maybe you're here today and that's what you need to hear. I need to be renewed. I'm not new. I don't have any understanding of what is ultimately good. I don't, I don't have any peace and security in my life. I don't have any access to God in my life. But Jesus is the one who can make you new. Who can wash away all of your sin. Who can give you the gift of eternal life can give you access to God, which he has done through his death on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. Maybe you just need to hear those two simple words that Philip said to Nathaniel. Follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a precious word you've given to us in your word. May we cherish it. May we listen to it. May we heed it. May we pay attention to it. And let us rejoice in the true ladder. Jesus Christ. who connects heaven and earth. And one day will bring us into heaven, finally and fully. All of our longing will be relieved. Help us to persevere until that day looking to the one who is ultimately good, to him who provides peace and security to our hearts and souls and lives. And even now, has made it possible so that we have access to you. Pray this in his name. Amen.